Good morning. My name's Kel. I look around. I know, I think, many of you, but if not, just by way of uh, introduction, first and foremost, I'm a believer. And after that, privileged enough to be a husband, a father, part of this body, uh, and participate and serve in a few ways here. Grateful for that. Today might feel a little academic. I'm just going to Put that out there. Um, I know it. You might see it as we go. <laughs> Gria's like, I wouldn't expect anything less, Kel. <laughs> and as I went through the passage and things, there were different ways that I could go that the passage says it brings forth and different ways it could have gone. But I felt compelled to give weight to what I thought was the most urgent part of the message. And... That urgent part, sometimes we shy away from. Sometimes we're not so uh, willing to confront. And so, and I apologize right off the bat that if this feels like an accusation, I'm certainly in, you know, don't, you know, there's only one accuser. (laughs) And certainly not, you know, there's no one in the room that's justified in judging. There's only one judge. So I just want to bring this message uh, with significant amount of humility as we should do everything, but particularly you know, the, the content um, that I'm going to be highlighting here. But as we start, I'm, I've actually split this into two parts because the second part is, it's a bit heavy. As I finish up, it kind of relies understanding of, of what's going on from you know, the, the law through redemption. But before I do that, I just wanted to give us context for the part of Scripture and the passage that we're in today. And so that's why I split it up between part one, part two. And our specific passage today is 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. But to get a deeper understanding, just kind of peel the onion once on Thessalonians, we've got to go to Acts because you know, that's, that's where we start. So if you turn with me uh, first to Acts 17, 1 through 9. Um, let me just explain here what's going on. So you may or may not know this, um, and this might be familiar, it might not be familiar, but after the death and resurrection of, uh, of Jesus, then there, the word was to be spread. That was the, that was the big thing that Jesus uh, uh, compelled uh, the apostles to do, was go spread the word, tell the world. Right? And one of the main things that we see in the whole New Testament is this word being spread. And so in Acts, just to give us context, a lot of Acts, it revolves around Paul's missionary journeys. Okay? And he took four, and those are all supposed to be little maps of you know, kind of where Paul went on his missionary journeys. He visited the church in Thessalonica, which is in his second uh, missionary journey, and so that's where we get the whole notion of Thessalonians. Is, uh, in, in Acts, we read about this. He started a church. And amazingly, if, when we read this, you'll see he was there for about three weeks. Is, if you read the text, you can kind of see maybe about three weeks. But just to give you a notion of, of what's going on, and we're not in, we're not in Thessalonians, the book of Thessalonians quite yet. We're in the book of Acts. So if you turn there, I'm just going to read... Uh, so that we understand kind of what's going on uh, you know, later on. So I'm in Acts 17, uh, verse 1. 
Now when they, that's Paul and Silas, had passed through, and you know, I just don't do well with these. <laughs> Amphenola, yep, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, so he goes into the synagogue, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so that's three Sundays, and that's where I get the notion of three weeks, of uh, his time that he was there, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, it's important to note here, when they say scriptures at this point, they didn't have the New Testament. They just had the Old Testament. So he's reasoning with the people in Thessalonica from the Old Testament. And what is he reasoning about? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's teaching about Jesus from the Old Testament. For the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And the Jews were jealous. Okay, so here's, here's where it gets dicey. And this sounds a bit like what was going on uh, with Jesus, right? Some of the Jews, and you read this, the way to read this, the way the translation goes, is Jews probably means Jewish religious leaders, okay? So they were offended. Um, well, well, let's read here. You'll, you'll get the notion of what's going on, right? But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, out to the crowd. So what's going on here is they enticed this mob against Paul and Silas, against what they were saying. Paul and Silas had to go seek cover and they happen to seek cover with this guy named Jason. So they kind of go to his house, um, is, is, is what's implied here, right? And when they, I'm in verse 6 here, and when they, the mob and the Jewish leaders, right, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when, they had taken, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so do you see what's going on? Paul goes into Thessalonica. He goes into the synagogue. He's going to start a church. He's starting the church of Jesus, right? Not the church of the law but the church of Jesus, and not the law that the Jewish leaders felt like they were you know, proud about. They knew all, they followed all the rules and things like that. And here comes Paul saying, well, no, the law has been fulfilled, and now we've got Jesus. They get offended. They, riot, they start up this, this riot. Uh, it's dangerous for Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas go, and um, Jason gives them shelter. They go to Jason's place, you know, however they get him out, and essentially... They make Jason pay for uh, hiding Paul and Silas. Um, and so, and, and all over, this is all over the accusation that there is a king greater than Caesar. That's what, well, that was the excuse, I think, that was the excuse that the Jewish leaders used 
to accuse Paul and Silas. My hunch, if you look at other places in Acts and other, uh, other parts of the New Testament, is what they, were really, uh, what they were really offended by is someone was challenging their authority. Someone was challenging what they believed and what they believed and their, their, their notion of tradition and law and you know, that, that they, were, they were greater um, than, than others that weren't following the law and stuff like that. And they were offended. Someone challenged what they held dear. Paul came in and said, all you hold dear, all you identify yourself with, all that you follow, all that you wrap your life around is old. It's, it's wrong, and now we have Jesus. And that offended them so much that they essentially ran him out of town. Okay, so that's Acts. That's our, that's our foundation. And then, essentially, Thessalonica, the, the first and second Thessalonians is a letter, and this is a little map of books of the Bible and stuff like that, right? Um, so the, the, so Acts uh, up here is what we read, and now we're in Thessalonians, and he's writing a letter back to the people of Thessalonica, back to the church in Thessalonica. Just so, so if, if this isn't clear to you how this all fits together, that's what I'm trying to paint a picture here in, in kind of part, excuse me, part one um, you know, of, of the message here today. Okay, so now let's go to Thessalonians. Um, it's about that much further forward in your, in, your, uh, in your book there, in the Bible there, in, in the seat pocket. And so now we're in 1 Thessalonians, and this is our passage today. Okay, so I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. So Ben started, a, started on this last week. I'm just going to pick up in, in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, and you, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word, I want to stop there. So if you see up there, the red circle, and you see a little bit above it and a little bit below it, there's just these broad areas called Macedonia and Acacia, whatever. <laughs> um, and basically, the word spread from them you know, to this broad area and things, right? So, uh, so that's, what's, that's what's being said there. For not only has the word been, uh, has the, Lord, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind, re- kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, this is, so the, the letter right, is, is commending them. This part of the letter is commending them. Uh, for how they received the word, how, as Ben gave the message last week, about how their faith was visible, how it spread from there, and things like that. But what I want to point, what I want to focus on today is in verse 9. And the specific part that Paul points out, that he, that he says, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And if we go back to Acts, right, so what we read, and they ran him out, and he went to Jason's place to, uh, to seek shelter. 
And then he writes, and then, and then later on, a few years later, Paul writes to them about how they turned from idols. I think the question then becomes, how did they know? How did the people of Thessalonica know they needed to turn from idols? You're just telling me about Jesus. You're telling me about how he's the son of man, how he you know, lived a perfect life, is fully God, fully man, was crucified, died, buried, and rose. But how do I know I have to deal with all this baggage that I have, all these idols that I have? My contention is that, um, is that that was part of what he said, even though it doesn't tell us in Acts, is that that is what he was, he was on to. He was pressing the people, in these, in, in particular the Jewish re- religious leaders, he was pressing them about their idols. And they were so offended and so, uh, they were, he was essentially questioning what they, what they identified themselves, everything they followed, everything they wrapped their lives around, and he was questioning it, saying you have to give up all of that in order to receive Jesus. And you can't have both. You, to, to fully commit yourself to Jesus, you have to give up. You know, what you, what, what, how you've identified yourself, like I said, how you've defined yourself um, and things. Now, part of the reason I'm comfortable saying that I think that's the case is Paul does this elsewhere in Acts. You, you read it elsewhere where he goes after everything that is essentially not Jesus, anything created um, that's not Jesus. And it struck deeply enough to anger. I think it struck de- deeply enough to anger the Jewish, Jewish leaders, because Paul knew, Paul knew that to fully accept the gospel, that, that whatever any individual was worshiping, whatever they were idolizing, had to be confronted, had to be given up uh, in order to fully accept and commit and, and believe and, and, and you know, essentially have Jesus define you versus anything created define you. So then the question for us becomes, okay, have we confronted and have we given up our idols? Now, it's not just Paul that did this. Jesus did this. One of my, you know, one of the, the passages I gravitate to most about, you know, that, that points this out is the rich, the rich young ruler. Uh, we read about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and it's essentially a passage about giving up an idol. The rich young ruler was not willing to give up and for him, his idol was his wealth, and he was not willing to give it up. But I, I, think, you, I think that message could have been about giving up anything, that that person, just to make the point, right, that that individual that Jesus confronted could have been anything, anything that they held dearly, that Jesus peers into your heart, knows exactly what's going on, and says, you have to, anything created, you have to give up. If you're going to follow me, you have to give that up. I think that's the, you know, a, a main point of that uh, passage about the rich young ruler. So, and my point being, it's not just Paul that does this, right? We see, we see Jesus doing this um, you know, also. And we see it elsewhere. So we have to be then aware of the relevance of idols. And sometimes you can question this because there's, there's cases in the Old Testament where idols are ridiculed. Right? I mean, they have, they have no relevance. The, the scripture is almost indifferent to them. You know, they, they're almost, like I said, they're almost ridiculed, like little, little wooden things that don't breathe, they don't see, they don't do anything. And they're almost just demeaned, 
right? As far as, and like, okay, well, how can that mean anything? How can it, how, how can, how do I have to confront something that's so meaningless? But what we have to recognize, it's not really the idol that's being pointed out. It's what's behind the idol. And essentially, uh, you know, powers and principalities use idols to get us to, you know, and they're used as a tool, used as a tool, and that, that powers, principality, Satan, is fixed on using and is fixed on our destruction. Absolutely fixed on our destruction. And the, the odd part is, is how do they use it? How do they go about using these idols to, to assure our destruction is they get us to worship. And, and, and because Satan knows, everyone in here is a worshiper. Everyone's a worshiper. It's just, it's, and it's not a matter of whether you worship or not. It's a matter of who or what you worship. And, they, and, they, and God and Satan both clearly, clearly know that you become that, like that which you worship. And so when this plays out with, with Jesus, sanctification and worshiping Jesus are in perfect harmony. Because as you worship Jesus, you become more like Jesus, and that's, you know, that's part of your, the process of sanctification. So it works out perfectly. We see it in Trinity, right? God is always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is always saying, no, you worship the Father, and we're given the Holy Spirit right, to, to pursue to pursue to, as our helper um, in this. And so it's, per, if it, it's perfectly consistent. The flip side is, is, or I shouldn't say the flip side, right, but the notion that you become that, like that what you worship is also well understood by, you know, by powers, principalities, by Satan that are you know, clearly not Jesus, that Satan will do anything will do anything to get you to worship anything other than Jesus and has no problem whatsoever with a slight lie. And a slight, listen, what I'm getting at here with a slight lie is getting you to worship things that are very, very good. They are very, very good. And I'll, I'll go through some examples here. Um, right, and getting you to worship when you worship something, anything, anything, whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, then it leads to your destruction. And the slight lie is similar, essentially, to what Satan did in the garden, to just make you question, just make you think, oh, well, that's not true. I, can, you know, if I can, I can pursue something good, and that's good. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. But there, there's, this, there's a lie going on. Now, if you turn, to me, turn with me to Romans, you'll get a feel here for the lie. So turn to Romans 1. Uh, we're in chapter 1, verse 18. And um, follow along or just listen. Uh, because you'll see here the lie, and you'll see and hear the dire 
dire consequences. So I'm on verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So basically it's saying, this is all, you know, this, there's no hidden, there's nothing hidden here. This is all very, you know, accessible. Is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Or the way to read that, so I am without excuse. For, they, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That is a desperate thing right there. That is an absolutely desperate place to be. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of, the, of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm not going to read the rest of that. Um, It's worthwhile reading, um, as is everything here. But... um, but it's the, the, I think the notion there in the beginning of verse 24, therefore God gave them up um, in their lusts to the, of their hearts to impurity. Be, and then going on in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so we have to think about, you know, what is the creature? Um, now... This talk, and if you read on, this talks about what we're given over to in this world. And that is a dire consequence. I would say a deeper consequence, and, and, and that will end, right? That will end. What you're given over to in this world, should you fall for the lie, is a dire consequence. But that ends. It ends when you die. But it gets worse after you die because the consequence afterward uh, should you not come around to the truth, is essentially eternal separation from God. And that, when you want to talk about God giving up and being separated, that is a, and that's what I'll, you know, there's different things that, that get characterized as wrath. We, we tend to think of it as something that comes down on you and something that's, you know, bad and, and you know, very visible and things. But I think the deepest wrath is being separated from God. Now, in order to not fall for the lie and to recognize idols, we have to be aware of them. We have to be aware of kind of tactics that are used and, I'll, and, I'll, and tactics that are used to, be, to bring about our destruction. Everything about an idol is false. Everything that, about you know, what an, what an uh, what's being, uh, idol being used for ill purposes is false. 
And like I said earlier, Satan will use anything to get you to worship anything other than Jesus. And so sometimes an idol will falsely present itself as savior. Now, I, I need to stop here for a second and just and talk about that when I talk about the slight lie, right? I'm not too concerned in this day and age, in this room, about worshiping a trinket, right? Worshiping a little, you know, uh, uh, image, statuette, or something like that. What I'm t- and so, so to me, that's kind of a distant thing, very visible and stuff. What, I, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm after here is something that seems good, but we make it God. And those are the ones that I think are the most dangerous because it's hardest to recognize. Okay? Um, and so, it's, so what I, don't, what I'm, what I want to be very, very careful about is not not compelling that we turn away from these things completely, right? But that we keep them in order. We keep them as created things that are not to be worshipped. Very, very good, but not to be worshipped. And, and, and they can be twisted, and this is what happens, is they get twisted a good into God. And, and that's what I, when, I, when I say Satan will use anything, this is massively decept- de- de- you know, deceitful, taking something that's very, very good and getting you to believe and getting you to worship it as God. So some will present themselves as Savior. Let me, so, so it's not that, they'll, not, that, not that it'll be declared as kind of our redemptive Savior, something, you know, that, that it gives us eternal life or something like that, but something that in this world saves us. And... Let me, let me give, some, give you some examples. And I happen to be gender specific here. It works both ways. I could be joyful, secure, and have meaning in my life if only that guy I married was a better husband to me and, and, and a better father to our children. If he would do that, then everything would be fine. I'm in this life, I'm, I'm, I'm this wife and mother hell, and the reason is I'm here is my husband isn't being the husband or father that he should be. And if he would just realize this and admit it and change, then I'd be saved from this hell that I'm in. And then I would have meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and joy. Now, you know, maybe that's happened to some degree. To some of you, um, I went pretty drastic in the whole thing, <laughs> right? Um, but but it only takes a little bit. But the point being is that looking to that for your joy, for your fulfillment, for your meaning, and things, it will fail. It will fail. But if you look to that and you're saying, okay, that's what saves me from my predicament. You're, you're on the cusp, if not already there, of treating that as something that saves you. All right? And I promise you, I promise you, the way to destroy a relationship is to deify the person that you're in the relationship with. To say, because, because it, they cannot deliver. They cannot deliver. To say, oh, my husband, my wife will give me joy, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, 
No. <laughs> no. You should enjoy them. So am I, am I against you know, seeking, seeking a enjoyment and fulfillment in Christ together with a spouse? Absolutely. It's one of the most joyous things around, right? But to, to believe that it will fulfill you in the way that Jesus fulfills, you, it will fail, and then you'll get even more angry at that individual or at God saying, see, I told you this wasn't going to work. Another example could be the idolatry of truth. Now, am I saying truth, seeking truth is bad? By all means, no. It's one of the most interesting and, and uh, awe-inspiring pursuits uh, you know, that, that you can go about, right? But to say I am right with Jesus because I have a good understanding, no. No, I am saved because I know what this says, no. But so you're, you're creating a savior out of your understanding of truth. How about another one? Saviors, idols will falsely present themselves as mediators. Okay? I'll be able to get closer to God if I can only be better friends with Ben. Because he's a pastor. And he's close to God. So if I can get to him, then I'm closer to Jesus. And, stuff. And, and, and sometimes, not Ben, not Dave, <laughs> will present themselves this way, right? But it's, 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 creating an, it's creating a mediator, right? But there's only one mediator, and that's Jesus, right? But you have to be aware of what's going on here. And creating something, something created as a mediator, essentially you're creating an idol that serves a function that Jesus and only Jesus serves, or how about this one? Worship wasn't really good today. I didn't like the music. Can you just, I mean, is that just heartbreaking to God? Like, God's, like you can't worship me because of that, this, this song? Are you kidding me? Or maybe today, the sermon wasn't that great. <laughs> and so, and so I, couldn't, I couldn't find my worship, and I couldn't worship because I didn't like the message. Okay? You're creating a, you're, you're worshiping worship. See that? And, 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 and creating a mediator between you and God, between your, your, your claiming that your ability to worship Jesus is a function of, of a song and what some guy says. And all I'm doing is saying what I think is here. <laughs> right? To put worship in a position of governing your worship, you're creating an idol and you're worshiping worship. Okay? Am I saying worship is bad? No. Right? But this slight lie, this slight lie of, ooh, you can only worship if, the, if you like the music and stuff. Now, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to get into style. Some people feel more worshipful with other, different styles and stuff like that, and you should seek what, you know, but, but to say that it's in between and it governs your worship, you know, that, that, that is a lie. It's a slight lie. 
How about, these? How about this? Idols will falsely attempt to give us identity. Okay, how about this one? If my children are good, if, I, if, if, if my children are, have good grades, they have the right relationships, they're not bullies, they have, you know, they're, they're following Jesus, they're, you know, they, then, then I'm good, right? And the minute they slip away, everything I've done is in vain. Like, what just happened, right? I lost my identity because I deified my children. I deified somebody else and said, my identity rests in those created beings that <laughs> are also known as my children. Um, or, you know, if, if my relationship, if my job is okay, then I know that God is caring for me because he's allowing me to have provision. It's deifying and it's worshiping something and saying that my provision comes because of that. No, your provision comes from the, from the Lord. And the way to, the way to recognize the identity lie is to question yourself and say, what if it was taken away? The things that I hold dear, and again, I got to keep emphasizing, right, is uh, you might find identity in a set of relationships. And am I, say, am I saying that those relationships are bad? No. But to say that they identify you, and if they're stripped away from you, right, that you lose everything, then you're falling for the lie uh, that you're idolizing that identity that's, that comes from anything other than Christ. Idols will promote a lie that they can make us righteous. Martin Luther called this confusing the theology of the cross with theology of glory. Whereas the, you know, the theology of the, of, of the cross is what Jesus did for us. The theology of glory is what I do for Jesus. And that we add to what's being done, what has been done on the cross for us with our righteousness, with what we do. And we add to it. There's nothing to be added. It's fulfilled completely. And our, anything that we do is in response and gratefulness. Uh, you know, to, to what's been done. But, but this plays out in our heads, right? This plays out in our hearts. That because I'm serving in so many ways, I'm more righteous. And because the more I do, the more righteous I am. And it's, it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Because I sacrifice my time and my money and my energy and my efforts, I become more righteous, and there's no, there's no righteousness grade on what you do. Or you're looking, at, you're looking at other people and convincing yourself, saying, boy, this person does this, that, and the other, and I need to be more like them so I can be more righteous. What do other people do, what you do, your righteousness is established completely on what Jesus has already done. But there's a lie. Right, that we can that we can fall for an idol that we can go after. This one, um, this last one, is I think becoming more and more uh, predominant. Is the 
the righteousness of tolerance and saying, I can't, I can't tell you that you're wrong because you might be right, right? Who am I to say that you're wrong, right? But, and, and we, you know, if we are more accepting, if we're more understanding and we subscribe to this, this notion of, you know, that our, we, our, our righteousness is based on our tolerance of others, right? Then that's completely against the, the, what's clearly pointed out in Scripture that there is right and wrong. And the, even the gospel, is, it's, it's described as offensive. And so are we supposed to shy away from what's, what's offensive? No. No, it's part of what you know, Jesus came to, to point out. And, and part, of what, part of what's pointed out in Scripture is there is a notion of right and wrong. Scripture doesn't say tolerance, 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 everybody might be right. And so all of these examples are examples of taking something that's good and turning it into God. And that's why, that's why I use the term a slight lie. And that's why I'm not you know, talking about trinkets and statuettes and stuff like that. Because, and this is, this is the piercing part of the heart, is which ones are you falling for? Because it doesn't distinguish. Remember in, in Romans, when we read, we traded the truth for a lie. It didn't say we traded it for some lies. Or these lies are okay because they're little white lies and these lies are really bad. It didn't say that. It said we traded it for a lie and then, you know, the consequence. Another way to look at it is just different kinds of idols. You know, and, and you know, not, so before it was, you know, what, what, what lies will they tell, what will come across, and then this is just a different way, a different way to look at it. Okay, now, the, the last part I wanted to, to come on to, though, is what we find in the different ways to understand what's going on. And there's kind of three scriptural metaphors for idol worship. The first one is you find, and I put some references in here, right? But the first one is, and this, this is the one that I found most common, and it's just what the research that I did. Um, you know, other research might lead to other, but, um, but I, what, what I found most common was that idol worship, regardless of what that idol is, idol worship is described as spiritual adultery. Right? We love what we idolize. Another one is political or covenantal metaphor. What this one is specifically uh, in, in Isaiah, when the Israelites you know, entered into agreements um, with the Egyptians and I think it was the Syrians uh, for protection, right? And then later on, God says, you sought something or someone else for your protection. I am your protector. I am your God. You know, don't look elsewhere, and they were they were uh, judged for that. And then, um, you know, religious a religious metaphor. We talked a little bit about this that we you know false gods. We look look to false gods, looking to idols, you know, for our, to save us. But when when looking at these and trying to wrap it into you know, what's, what's been done for us. I think the spiritual adultery metaphor, not only did I, did I find it most frequent, um, but I think it gives us the notion of the heart 
of God for us. Because when we look at adultery in scripture, we find out that the punishment for adultery is death. And so if we are committing adultery, spiritual adultery, against our father, then, like I said, the punishment is death. But as, a, as, as, as the one that we are committing adultery against, then death must be carried out. But at the same time, someone who truly, truly cares for us and loves us wants reconciliation. So the law requires death but the one that we have relationship wants and seeks reconciliation. And so the only way that as a just God that the law can be fulfilled and death has to, has to, has, is, a, is a consequence. So as a just God, that can be fulfilled. But as a loving God that wants reconciliation with those that he cares so deeply for and he wants reconciliation, even though we commit the spiritual adultery in our heart, as a just God, as a loving God, as a perfect God, he fulfills both with Jesus. Because even though we commit the spiritual adultery, he fulfills both what's required of an adulterer, but also the reconciliation that he so deeply, deeply desires And so I think final things here. When you oppose your idols, it's dangerous business. Paul, Paul opposed idols in, in, to, against the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica, and they ran them. You know, physically, he was in danger. He had to seek shelter with this guy, Jason, right? But I would argue, and so, and so you should expect this, as you confront your idols, as you confront what Satan is using to entice you to take something good and make it God, you should expect this could get harder before it gets easier, right? But I would argue that not confronting your idols and appeasing your idolatry is a massively greater consequence and not a good one. And so, so that's, that's kind of what we can do to turn from our idols. It's, you know, it's one thing. It doesn't, it doesn't save us. It doesn't make us more righteous. All this stuff that I said, right? But I think part of the message and part, part of why this, these few words in this letter back to Thessalonica, when, they, when Paul said, and they turned from their idols... Right, and, 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 and to worship the one true God, I think those things go together because there's many other places where you, it says you can't serve two. There's only one. And I think we're very, very subject to appeasing and saying, oh, well, it's okay you know, what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm just on that cusp of creating a God out of these things that are good. 
And all these things, yes, they are good, but they are created things, and they are not to be worshipped. And so God knows, God knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows that this is a struggle. He knows that, that it's something that we can be confused about and we can, we can fall for a slight lie. But even greater, it's something that he's dealt with. And you either accept that he's dealt with it and, and recognize I am worshiping created things or not. And I really think that this is one of those areas that actions speak louder than words. But a lot of this stuff, it's the, the slightness between what's good and what's God, what, I mean, what you create as a God, is only known in your heart. Because you can have all kinds of good actions, and you can have a, a facade about all of this stuff, but it's only what is known to you and to your Savior that really knows what you're worshiping in your heart. And I think this message, and, or I think this passage, really, really compels us. If I go back, just to finish up here, if I go back to 1 Thessalonians, verse 9, the second part there, and how you turned to God from idols. So you don't, just, it's, you don't just turn to God. You turn from something. We are all worshipers. You turn from something to God, to Jesus, to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So I think the recognition the recognition that you, you turn from something to something, you don't just turn to. You have to turn from. And everyone knows it. And I think we all probably struggle with that slight lie of, no, I haven't created a God out of these things. These are just perfectly good. I haven't created a God. And... That is, if, 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 that is exactly what an idol giver will give you, is convince you that you haven't created a God. And, and if, you, if you've convinced yourself that you haven't created a God, then you can easily say, oh yeah, I'm not worshiping that. And that is the lie. That is the lie. So I think re- just reading this, absorbing this and understanding that you turn from something and really letting it pierce your heart and saying, what have I created that's good, that's perfectly good, but I've created a God? And, and the, the notion that that is a lie is, is completely after your destruction and... If you don't confront it, you might never know.